Welcome back to our Sabbath School lessons entitled God's Mission, My Mission. We're on lesson number eight this week called Mission to the Needy. How do you define the needy? Who is needy? You might look at a man living in a half a million dollar or a million dollar house with a wonderful job, great family, and say that man's not needy at all but he may have an aching, longing heart for peace and joy. It's obvious when you walk by somebody who is homeless that they have physical needs, but also there are emotional needs. The woman who feels a lack of love, the woman whose husband has left her for somebody else, she may may be physically cared for in the monetary aspect of life, but it may be that she has deep emotional needs. So there are physical needs, there are mental needs, there are emotional needs, and there are spiritual needs. And our lesson encompasses all of those. I was interested in a sentence in the introduction to our lesson that says, whatever the situation, it's at the end of the first paragraph, we are called to be God's helpers for all people in need, regardless of their background. And then the last sentence in that first page of the lesson says, whatever the needs are, we must be ready to do what we can to help. This is a central part of what it means to be a Christian and what mission must include. So we're constantly looking out of ourselves. Somebody said anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. So Jesus calls us to be outgoing, to look for the needs of others, those physical needs, those mental needs, those emotional needs, and those spiritual needs. Monday's lesson begins with a section from Luke chapter 5. I think of all the sections in the Bible, this is one of the most creative to uh, on a witnessing method. I've done a lot of ministry in the last 56, 57 years, but I've never used this method. Luke chapter 5, we're going to start with verse uh, 17 and Onward, there's so many lessons in this particular story. It says, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So the power of God is going out to heal people's physical needs. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They sought to bring him and lay him before him. Now there's a problem. These friends of this man who has been paralyzed, are bringing him to Jesus. But there's so many people crowding in this little house, they can't get in. So what do they do? It says in verse 19, And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst uh, before Jesus. And now you can imagine, here's Jesus preaching. The, The crowds are around him. He's talking about the power of God. He's touching people and they're being healed. And then they have all this commotion. They look up. Tiles are falling through the roof. You know, dust is falling down. These men open up this hole and they see the, the, the people see and Jesus sees this bed coming down in the midst. There are a couple of things I learned about that story. One is in witnessing to others, we always can't use conventional methods Sometimes it takes methods that others have not thought of. But I think there's a second most important lesson, even more important than that, and it's this. Friends bring friends to Jesus. 
that paralyzed man could not come by himself. Somebody saw his need. Somebody recognized his pain. Somebody sensed that he couldn't walk and he'd never come to Jesus by himself. And so they brought him to Jesus. I took a quick look at the individual healings of Christ in the Bible. This was not the times that Jesus healed people by the masses, but individual healings. Two-thirds of the time, somebody brought somebody to Jesus. There's over 30, 33, 34 individual miracles. But if you look at the concordance of miracles, some 23, 24 of those miracles, somebody is bringing somebody to Jesus. What does Monday's lesson teach us practically? It teaches us this. There's somebody in your sphere of influence that unless you lead them to Jesus, they're not going to come. There's somebody that God wants you to share with, some needy person. Now, the fascinating thing about this story, there's another fascinating thing. They bring him for physical healing, but Jesus gives him much more than he expected. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. So when he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, faith is something you see. Our faith is turned into action as we lead others to Jesus. Our faith is turned into action as by the power of the Holy Spirit, we make a decision to bless others. So when he saw their faith, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Jesus was God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three separate distinct persons. But even in Hebrews chapter 1, the Father calls the Son God. He says, thy throne, O God, the Father speaking to the Son. Thy throne, O God, is a throne forever. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, comprising what we call the Godhead, all are eternal in their past, present, and future. So Jesus had the authority to forgive sins because indeed he was gone. But notice here, after the Pharisees condemn him for that, Jesus says, is it easier to forgive a man's sins or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? And he heals the man. Another lesson from this is, Physical healing and spiritual healing are indissolubly linked. Here, Christ not only forgave the man's sins, but he healed his palsied limbs. In scripture, human beings are physical, they're mental, they're emotional, and they are spiritual beings. So healing is restoration into the image of God, which indeed this story reveals. So what are the lessons from Monday's lesson, from Sunday's lesson? The lessons from this are simple. First, at times we use unconventional lessons, unconventional methods to bring people to Jesus. Secondly, friends bring friends to Jesus. Thirdly, when we bring people to Jesus, he is the complete healer. We go to Monday's lesson that's entitled Christ's Method Alone. We find this in John chapter 5 at the man of the pool of Bethesda. But what leads us to John 5? What are the first words in the book of John? What are the very first words that not in the book 
itself, but that Jesus speaks would be more accurate to say. So what are the very first words in the Gospel of John that Jesus speaks? Now, if you have a red letter Bible, you're going to go past the first 25 verses and see no red letters. You're going to go past the first 35 verses and see no red letters. And you're going to come down to verse 38 and you'll see your red letters in the red letter Bible, the first words that Jesus speaks. There are two disciples following him and they say to Jesus in John 1 verse 38, what do you seek? What? Rather, Jesus says to them, what do you seek? What are you seeking? So Jesus asks them the question, what are you seeking? What's on your heart? What's on your mind? What's in your agenda? What, what are you looking for? Jesus always begins where we are, not where he is. He always begins by asking what our needs are. What are you seeking? Are you seeking physical healing? Are you seeking emotional well-being? Are you seeking inner peace? What are your needs? Are you seeking forgiveness, freedom from guilt? So that statement, what are you seeking? The first words of Christ provide the very foundation of Jesus' ministry in all the book of John. In chapter 2, Jesus attends the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. And the host runs out of unfermented grape juice or wine, the sparkling, fresh wine. And as he does, Jesus again wonders, what are you seeking? He asks, what are you seeking? In his mind, Jesus knows what that man is seeking. He's seeking deliverance from social embarrassment. Because if you're at a feast, a wedding feast, and you run out of food or drink, you become embarrassed for those who cannot participate in those festivities. Jesus says, what are you seeking? I'm concerned about social embarrassment. And he changes the water into the fresh juice of the grape. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. His religion is formal, ritualistic. It's on the outside. Jesus again says, what are you seeking? Not so much asking him direct, but that's the point of the chapter. Jesus meets Nicodemus' spiritual needs and says, you must be born again. In John chapter 4, the needs are not emotional. The needs are not necessarily spiritual. I mean, the, need, the needs are not social. The needs are not uh, spiritual needs. The needs are emotional needs. And uh, the woman at the well meets Jesus, and her needs are deeply emotional. She's been living with men that have not been her husband. Jesus detects that. He shows her kindness and love, and he meets those deepest emotional needs by showing her that he is the living water that can quench the thirst for love in her heart. In chapter 5, the, that is our study on Monday, we find that the man by the pool of Bethesda, who's been there for 38 years, has physical needs, and Jesus meets those physical needs. The word Bethesda. Beth means sign of or house of, like Bethlehem, house of bread. Like um, Bethsaida, house of fish. Bethlehem, Lehem is bread, Beth is sign of our house of. Seda is fish, Bethsaida is house of fish. Beth Esda is here. Beth is sign of, her house of. Esda is mercy. So Jesus comes to a place that is despicable, a place that people are suffering, 
a place of sickness and suffering and heartache and sorrow, and he comes there, ministers to a man who's been there 38 years and brings grace, he brings mercy. Jesus says to that man, will you be made well? Do you want to be made well? The man begins to give him excuses. Jesus cuts through all those excuses. He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. The man by faith grasps what Christ said. All true healing, whether that is physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, all true healing begins, begins with the desire implanted in the heart by the Holy Spirit to be healed. Do you want to be made well? What is your desire? Do you want to overcome your anger, your bitterness? What is your desire? Do you want to overcome and be victorious over the guilt of your life? So here, Jesus ministers in John 2 to social needs, John 3 to spiritual needs, John 4 to emotional needs, John 5 to physical needs. So Jesus is following that principle that we're talking about ministering to the needy. What are your needs? Notice what Ellen White says here, the Christ method alone. You'll find this in the first paragraph. It's a familiar statement, page 143 uh, in Ministry of Healing. Ministry of Healing, page 143. Christ's method alone. His method what? Alone. Will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, won their confidence, then he bade them follow me. Did you notice the steps? First, Jesus mingled with people. He mingled with them. You cannot win people if you stay aloof from them. You can't minister to their needs if you feel holier than they are and separate from them. So Jesus ministers to them, mingles to them. Then he ministers to their needs. He finds out what their needs are. He desires their good. As he mingles and ministers, he wins their confidence. As he wins their confidence, he then says, follow me. He doesn't simply mingle, meet needs, and win confidence. He simply doesn't make friends. As a friend of mine used to say, you make friends, and you make friends, and you make friends. And then you make Christian friends by sharing Jesus. And then as you study the Bible, you make Seventh-day Adventist Christian friends. Make friends? Make Christian friends, make Adventist Christian friends. Tuesday's lesson, I think, is a little more challenging. It's on refugees and immigrants. Now, why do I say it's more challenging? I say it's more challenging for this reason. It is very difficult to minister to people whose language you don't know, whose culture you don't know, and whose, whose very lifestyle is so dramatically different from yours. Now, how is it that we can minister to them. Look at Psalm 146, verse 9. Psalm 146, verse 9. And you'll find a way that we can minister to those who are needy and who are refugees. Psalm 146, verse 9 says, The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. So the Lord, here's, here's how, you, how we can witness. If we know the Lord is watching over them, and if we know the Lord is going to use us to relieve some of their needs, a refugee family moves in down the street. We can bring them a box of groceries. We can, we can welcome them into the community. 
where others may stand aloof because of their culture. We can visit them, minister to them in any way we can. The key thing here is not letting cultural barriers keep us from kindly, lovingly ministering to others. We can help refugee families get acclimated to the community. Our children can introduce their children to other kids in school. We can unselfishly serve and minister. Um, there's a wonderful paragraph at the end of Tuesday's lesson that says, how can we minister to immigrants and refugees? It's difficult because in some countries it may not be politically correct to mingle with or help these people. See, this is the advantage if you're in the United States of living in the United States because this is a multi-ethnic, multicultural society. And so when people move in and refugees move into the United States, when we talk about ministering to, to, to strangers and people of other cultures, we're not talking simply about going, say, to the Middle East or going to uh, Africa or Asia. We're talking about the people that live next door to us, or people who live on a street, people that are different than we are, and thinking about ways to be kind and compassionate to them. But it says, yet we must do what we can when, when, we, when we can to minister to these people who surely have been through some very difficult times and are in need of our help. So whatever degree we can, we must help. And how do you begin? You begin praying for them and asking God to impress you what they might need. But don't bypass the refugees living on your street. Not only are we concerned about the refugees, but there are people around us that are hurting, that are needy. Take the woman five houses down whose husband has left her and she's gone through the divorce. Take the man across the street from you who just has been diagnosed with cancer and is heartbroken. Take the unemployed young man that lives two streets over. So <laughs> here are people that are hurting, people that are in pain. I had an illustration of this. I was flying into Cincinnati. And as I flew into Cincinnati airport, it was in the wintertime in January, I was on my way to preach in the southern part of the United States. I had a stopover at Cincinnati airport in Ohio. We flew into Cincinnati and it was snowing early in January. I mean, really snowing. Got off the plane and I heard that announcement that you don't want to hear. It was at night. I was to be at my appointment the next day. And the announcement said, Ladies and gentlemen, we are so sorry, but the weather has turned so bad and it's inclement that no planes are going to be flying in or out of the airport tonight. The airport is closed. You'll have to get a hotel and uh, so forth. So I knew what to do because I've navigated my way through airports before. And as I'm walking down the corridor, hundreds of other people, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a young woman probably in her 30s with a holding a baby. The baby is crying, the woman is crying, and they're just crying and crying. But I was on my way to get my hotel. I wanted to get ahead of the crowds. I wanted to get for a good night's sleep and get out of there in the morning. And I saw this lady there. And I thought, well, she'll be okay. And as I kept going down, the Lord smote me. The Holy Spirit convicted me, go back and help that lady. And I thought, I can't do that. I'm in a hurry. I got to get my hotel. I'll be way back in line. But the Lord convicted me again. Look, you're going to preach on the love of God to preachers and you're not very loving. Go back there. So I went back, sat next to the lady and said, Madam, I've never met you. You've never met me. 
but I noticed that you were crying. And you don't have to worry, I'm a pastor. And uh, I may not know how to help you, but I've got a good listening ear if you want to share. And she said, oh, pastor, I just flew in from Germany. I flew an international flight. It was hard with my baby. My husband has been shipped off to Iraq. This was during the time of the Iraq war. I don't know when I'll see him again. The reason I'm coming home from the base in Germany is to get medical treatment because I have been diagnosed with cancer. My baby is crying and crying and crying. My husband's in Iraq. I have no cell phone with me. My baby's crying. I have been diagnosed with cancer. I don't have any clue what to do in this airport. I'm gonna have to sit here all night and uh, my parents are waiting for me in Kansas at the airport there and I just don't know what to do. Bawling her eyes out. I said, okay, the first thing you do is this. Here's my cell phone. You call your parents, let them know you're okay. Second thing, as a pastor, I travel all over the world. I know what to do in airports. You're going to get a coupon for a discount at a hotel. Come with me. I will get you that coupon. You go your way. I'll go my way. So she came. She developed a confidence. I got her the coupon, put her on her bus, sent her to her hotel, went back, got my coupon, went to a different hotel. And I've thought about that often. How many people do I miss? Because I'm not as sensitive to the Holy Spirit as I should be that are in pain. Look around you at the people who are hurting. I love what our text says in Luke 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I like this part. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Who is brokenhearted around you? Some teenager whose parents have gone through divorce. Somebody dying of cancer. Somebody that's lost a job. Somebody that can't make their house payments. Somebody who is experiencing abuse in some way. Who can you minister to today? Who can you share Jesus' love with today? Who can you minister today to that's hurting? And then on Thursday's lesson, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that can lay down one's life for his friends. What does this mean? to lay down your life for your friends. Is it simply the physically laying down of our life? I don't think so. Love is an action word. Like the little boy in New York, poor ghetto boy in the back of the crowd, a preacher was standing on the street corner preaching on love, and the little boy in the back put his hands over his mouth and said, Mister, I want to see love with skin on it. I want to see love with skin on it. Love is an action word. To lay down our life for our friends means that we give unselfishly, kindly, compassionately to others around us. The gospel writers recorded example after example of Jesus' practice of building bridges with people from other cultures. I love the way Ellen White puts it in an article in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, October 15, 1895. 
It says here, and this is in Friday's lesson, the third part, third paragraph, when the Lord bids us do good for others outside our home, he does not mean that our affections for home shall be diminished and that we shall love our kindred or our country less than he, less because he desires us to extend our sympathies. But we are not to confine our affection and sympathy within four walls and includes the blessing and enclose the blessing that God has given us so that others will not be benefited with us in its enjoyment. The responsibility that God has given us is to be a blessing, to be a blessing to our families and a blessing, a blessing to those outside of our families and our neighborhoods. You remember that old song, Lord, make me a blessing today. Is that your prayer? To be a blessing. To minister to people who are bruised and hurting. May this Sabbath school lesson inspire you to be that blessing for Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love, your grace, your goodness. Thank you that we can be a blessing to others. Oh, Jesus, help us to minister to the brokenhearted, to the refugees, to the needy, to the people around us. Help us to be that blessing because Christ has been implanted in our hearts like that man that brought his friends to Jesus. Help us bring others to Christ as well. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.